Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. March has arrived, and with it, one of my favorite times of the year, Women's History Month and International Women's Day. While it's true that every day is Women's Day here on What She Said, it's heartening when the rest of the world joins us to celebrate women and their monumental achievements. My commitment to amplifying women's voices is stronger than ever, and I'm here to bring you stories, insights, and conversations that matter. Here's what I have lined up for you this week. I'm starting with an issue that hits close to home for many of us, hunger in our communities. Lori Nichol, CEO of Second Harvest, is here to discuss the critical findings of the Hungry for Change report. We'll dive into the challenges of food insecurity and waste in Canada and explore how we can all make a meaningful difference. Anne Brody is back with her latest entertainment picks. This week, she's sharing her thoughts on Diane Wellen's incredible documentary, 500 Days in the Wild, and the laugh-out-loud comedy, The Completely Made-Up Adventures of Dick Turpin on Apple TV+. The care of our elderly loved ones is a topic many of us will inevitably face. I'm talking to Elizabeth Payne, a veteran health reporter, who will share her personal and professional journey, highlighting the importance of advocating for the elderly in our health care system. Rosacea affects millions, including a slightly higher prevalence in women. I'm sitting down with Dr. Christine Palme from Care to Know to discuss this common skin condition and the treatments available, offering hope and advice for those affected. I'm also delving into the vibrant world of groupies in the pre-digital era with Karen Green's debut novel, Yellowbirds. It's a story of love, identity, and the quest for belonging set against the backdrop of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And to cut through the confusion surrounding nutrition, I have Mal Mana from Lady the F Up here to clear up some common misconceptions, share guilt-free cheat food ideas, and talk about protein needs for women. So make yourself comfortable and join me for an hour of engaging and empowering discussions. Let's make the most of this Women's History Month together on What She Said. The issue of hunger in our communities is more than just a headline. It's a pressing concern that demands our attention and action. The Hungry for Change report by Second Harvest brings this to the forefront, highlighting the urgent need to address food insecurity and waste in Canada. I'm now joined by Lori Nichol, CEO of Second Harvest, to unpack the report's insights and look at the ways we can all contribute to making a meaningful difference. Welcome back to the show, Lori. Hi, thanks for having me, Candice. Could you give us an overview of the Hungry for Change report and what prompted Second Harvest to undertake this research? Absolutely. So um, honestly, we did the research to better understand what we were in, in uh, what was coming down for us. So to better plan our own business. And so we sent out a survey to our all the organizations that we support and we received almost 1500 back. And it was really just to understand, OK, what's what did your year look like and what are you anticipating so that we could plan? And it was not shocking. I mean, it's disappointing, again, because it feels like there's just no interventions except for charities that are supporting people. Um, 
And we saw that there's an 18% increase coming of need for people. So that's like 100,000 people in the city of Toronto alone and over a million across the country. And I'm quite confident that that number is conservative because Second Harvest last year supported 4.8 million people and we're just one of you know 61,000 organizations. What are some of the most striking findings then from the report regarding food insecurity and waste? Um, I think one of the striking ones was that people weren't anticipating was the wait lists, that people were actually getting turned away. I think uh, there's an assumption that, well, if people need food, then there's there's places for them to go and it's always going to be there. And that's just not the case. For example, here at Second Harvest, we have a wait list of 74 organizations for our direct delivery route. We can't accommodate them. We just don't have the, the money to do it or the capacity to do it. That's right across the country. There are organizations that are changing their catchment areas to make them smaller because they can't manage the number of people that are coming in. So they're, they're redirecting them to different organizations that are also at capacity. There's people that are in lineups for hours that end up at the front of the line and there's very little there or nothing there. Uh, we, we just know that there's not enough food, there's not enough money, and this whole charitable food network is at a breaking point and it's become the new normal. This shouldn't be normal. Like we like it should just be one news day. This is we should be really outraged by this. That I think it's one in five people are turning to food charity or will be turning to food charity in the next year. Where does this need for food and waste sort of intersect? Well, I think the important piece is there's more than enough food in this country to feed everybody. We know that. And it's about getting the food to the people in two different ways. So Really, the big issue is people are living below the poverty line. We're in an affordability crisis. Everybody's feeling it. There is no more middle class. It's just it's the rich and it is people that are struggling, which is a whole new place for us. And while we know at the same time, there's all this food going into landfill. And I mean, good Lord, we all are feeling the climate crisis right now. Like yesterday here in Toronto, it was 18 degrees. Uh, Today, it's, you know, minus 17. It's just none of this is making sense. So if we can, for the interim, before, you know, we really would like good policy so people can go shopping with money in their pockets. But while we're having to do this, we have to connect the dots of there's this much food, it's going to landfill, it's a direct contributor to our climate crisis, and there's this many people that are hungry. How do we make sure that they're getting the food that they need? And not just food, right? Like healthy food, because that's also what you see is as soon as you're food insecure, the nutritional complements of your food just degrades immediately. You're buying food from dollar stores. You're buying food that is overly processed and not fresh, not healthy, because that's what you can afford, which we all know is not good for health outcomes, not good for educational outcomes, social outcomes. It's all just not a good, it's a bad news story. Yeah. I mean, I saw raspberries this week at $11. Raspberries. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I mean, who would buy them at that price? I, I don't know anybody, to be honest. So. You know, the waste is huge. What can we do in our own homes? I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but I think we really need to drive this point home. What can we do in our own homes to prevent that waste? I think there's a lot we can do in our own homes. And I I think some of it's already happening, quite frankly. And the first thing I always say is buy less food. Just buy less food. Save yourself some money. Uh, And now people are in a position where they're forced to buy less food. Some to the extreme, but generally buy less food. Also understand how to store your food. Like we are, I think most of us didn't really learn how to store our food, but now we actually have this great thing called the internet. So you can 
no, this goes on my counter and this goes in my fridge and don't put milk on the door of the fridge because it'll spoil faster. And there's a lot of things that uh, people put together that they shouldn't. Like we put potatoes and onions together. Don't because ethylene gas will make the potatoes, um, you know, go bad sooner. So there's that. There's always like try your hand at different recipes. So we look in the fridge and we go, huh, I don't know what to do with these things. And it's actually not that complicated when you just, honestly, there's an app for everything uh, or even Google. You just put a, I have these ingredients. What can I make? It's amazing what you can Fine. Can I can I add in a suggestion? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, Ch- Chat GPT. Exactly. Go, in, go to Chat GPT and say, I have mushrooms, <laughs> I have broccoli, and I have pasta. What can I make? And it, it is incredible what it will give you. Exactly, a hundred percent. And also, just, you know, when you're shopping, don't go shopping. Well, obviously, don't go shopping when you're hungry, but don't go shopping because you go by the grocery store and you haven't looked in your fridge yet. Like it's amazing how many times you just go in and you bought the same thing that you're throwing away every week. And let's talk about those best before dates for a minute. Oh, hen- your favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. The, it's Oh my gosh. It's outrageous. I mean, and it's really sad because people are throwing food away because of the best before date. That is an arbitrary date. And, and they're also struggling to put food on their table. Like, but they believe that this date is gospel and it must be after midnight of whatever the date is, the food must be thrown away. That's simply not true. So there are five foods that expire in Canada. They are based on the nutritional complement of those foods. So baby formula, absolutely don't give your baby expired formula. Ensure like meals replacements, absolutely don't give your mom or your grandma that after. Uh, Protein bars. So if you're running a race or something, you're going to need those energies, those calories. Absolutely don't don't eat. I mean, you can eat it after it's fired, but not <laughs> you're running the race. And the other two are by prescription only. So don't worry about it. It's not it, unless <laughs> your doctor tells you about it. Don't worry about it. Everything else is a best before date. And the rules around best before dates from the government of Canada are if it has a shelf life of 90 days or less, it requires a best before date. However, <laughs> we have best before dates on everything. We so do. even the 90 days or less, those are pretty arbitrary dates, right? Like they're very conservative dates. And it is to ensure that product is rotating and being sold and being rotated and being sold. So we have to re-educate ourselves that, you know, trust your senses. Um, Absolutely. We didn't have best before dates in the 70s. That's when they came around. So it's a fairly new phenomenon. Plus, unfortunately, most of our food is so processed, it'll last forever. Yes. Um, actually, if you've ever seen, uh, I've seen some experiments done with some food. It's in like Twinkies and things yeah. like, oh, it's it's awful. Um, let's go back to uh, the report for a minute. How has the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated the issues of food waste and insecurity, according to your report's findings? Well, this is actually after COVID. So what we know from COVID is we spent a lot of money during COVID and people, their incomes were lost during COVID. And we haven't, come back from it. And so we were hoping it was a moment in time where for sure we're going to help people, but actually people were getting more support during COVID. Like CERB was a good thing. It's not good that we have to pay it all back now that people weren't expecting to do that. And that's really impacting people. So what's happening now is just the affordability crisis after COVID, right? That the that we weren't anticipating, the inflation that we weren't anticipating necessarily. And that's really you know, decimating communities across the country. And 
food prices are up 10% in the last two years after they were continually going up. So like 10% for a family of four is about $1,500. Ouch. Who can afford that after going through COVID every year, there's a price increase. And even as the price that the prices start to stabilize, they're still at a significant increase. They're not going down. They're just high, high. And they're still, they're still going higher and higher. Inflation has not stopping. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Lori Nickel from Second Harvest. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Soon you'll hear me knocking at your door. We're back with Lori Nickel from Second Harvest, and we're discussing their latest Hungry for Change report. Um, Lori, Second Harvest has been a pioneer in using technology to facilitate food rescue. Can you discuss how this technology is being used to connect surplus food with those in need? Yeah, absolutely. We want to be as efficient as possible. And the truth is, as an environmental organization, we have trucks in a warehouse, but we don't need that across the country because they exist. There's 61,000 charities. So what we did was create an app which connects a local food business directly with the charity in their local community, which makes the most sense and is the most environmentally friendly. And that has been a game changer for uh, food distribution across the country. So it doesn't matter if it's a small amount of food or a huge amount of food, could be tractor trailer loads, they can connect through this um, Second Harvest Food Rescue app. And it's really good because it, it provides safety for the donor because it will not um, connect you with an organization that doesn't have freezer or uh, cooler if the product is requires that. It doesn't even show up. So what a donor will see is the local organizations that can actually manage the food. And we also provide food safety certification because that is required and that's quite expensive. And so we want to make sure that people can access that. And unfortunately, you know, these organizations, they transition a lot. A lot of different people that are coming and going, volunteers. So so they really need support with that as well. But honestly, the Second Harvest Food Rescue app has changed the way Canada manages uh, food redistribution. And what are the, you know, what are the businesses that you work with that donate this food? Are they are they primarily restaurants that you're working with? No, 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 no. We work with everybody, like from farm to food service. You know, all the major retailers are using it from at their retail location, as well as their distribution centers. We have major manufacturers. I think right now there's over 5,700 food businesses on it, but also Starbucks, right? So it's the smallest food to the largest food and everything in between. I feel you probably know this off the top of the head, at the top of your head. How much, how much uh, food are you saving every year? Every year it increases. And so last year it was 74.4 million pounds of food that we could redirect to communities. So that's about the value of that was about $268 million of food. And why I mention that is because we're a free service. We get the food for free. We give the food for free. And so what that allows these charities to do is use their food budgets for something else. So what is the wraparound service? So I can give you a great story about one organization that um, supports schizophrenic uh, men in a house. 
And so they will, they go to pick up their lunches at Starbucks, about six of them. They, it does a couple of wonderful things. One, it integrates them into community in a whole different way. Two, they saved enough money from these lunches that they uh, could buy a van and go on trips. So that that's what's happening to, to all these organizations. They're able to use that funding for social workers, for training and education, for housing supports, for mental health and addiction assistance. Like, I think that's the real beauty. It's not just about the food. It's about the services as well. How can individuals and local communities um, get involved with Second Harvest or, you know, do they donate? Can they connect with you to to not just monetarily, but if they have food uh, that they want to donate? How do people get involved? Uh, The best way to get involved, well, there's two. Always we need funding. And so go to the Second Harvest website. If you have any extra money, we absolutely need it. Uh, One of the things that came out of the report, and we know this is true for ourselves, is the average charity is going to need an additional $76,000 next year. That's the average one, each of them. Um, But if you're a food business or you know anybody that uh, runs a food business, everybody has surplus food. Every food business does. It might be small, but they have it. So please direct them to the Second Harvest Food Rescue app. It's great because you get great data out of it. It'll tell you how many meals you've supported people with. It'll tell you how many greenhouse gases you've diverted, the water waste you've diverted. So you get some really cool stuff out of it, um, but mostly you get to help your community. So what are the next steps then for Second Harvest following the release of this report? And, you know, anything big on the horizon that you're excited about? Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, I mean, this report is really critical and I really, the point of it is, is bring awareness. This cannot be our new normal. This cannot be our new normal. Like this cannot be our new normal. I can't say that enough because I think it's a news day and it goes up and then it's gone. And then more people go and you see the lineups and what's happening. Um, But for us, the big thing that's happening right now is we are a a model for international organizations as well. So we support a whole bunch of of different countries with just the knowledge, right? Like best practices. And we're working on food loss and waste measurement uh, with the International Standards Organization so that globally, it's a global food supply chain, we can have a standardized measurement so that people will be forced to measure people being businesses. (laughs) And so we are forced to hit these targets. Like we have made targets in Canada. We said we're going to reduce food loss and waste by 50% by 2030. It's 2024. We're not measuring. Um, And we're also updating the avoidable crisis of food waste. So in the fall, we will launch five years later. How are we doing? Well, you know, I'm a raving fan. I love Second Harvest. I love what you're doing, everything you do for the environment, for people. Uh, it's incredible. So, Lori, we will have you back because I personally want to keep hammering this point home uh, that we could Thank be you. feeding every single person in this country with the bare minimum of effort if we really thought about it. So, a hundred percent. That's absolutely correct. Well, I love you too, and I love being here. So, thank you so much. Thanks, Lori. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Ann Brody, and this week we're starting off with 500 Days in the Wild. This looks incredible, Ann. Oh my goodness. It is phenomenal, this film. 
Diane Whelan, who's a, a documentary filmmaker, just had enough. She lived in out east and she just had enough of everything. So she decided to go on a 500-day trek across Canada. And of course, it didn't take 500 days. It took six years. Wow. <laughs> she documented it the whole time. And oh my word, she went to our three oceans. She bicycled, canoed, kayaked. Uh, she came up against bears. She slept outside, mostly alone for that whole period of time, if you can imagine the bravery that it took. And what I found most interesting at all of all of it, and it's so interesting, it's, it's riveting, it's like a drama, is that at the beginning of the trip, she was angry and bitter and just beaten down by life. By the end of it, a new woman, oh, confident, happy, at peace. You know, I was watching it and what what really struck me watching this was it's not that sanitized version of travel you see on Instagram. No. And, no. you know, th scenes like her tent going flying in the middle of a storm and, you know, having to get through like thick mud, uh, hiking through that. Uh, and of course, the bears. <laughs> the bears. And, and my worst thing was Lake Superior. I mean, we all know how deep that is. I find it kind of terrifying. She was in a huge storm on Lake Superior. I, it's like, it's crazy. And it really is an incredible amount of bravery she had to show to do yeah. that alone. Yeah. Um, so does she complete the journey, Ian? She completes the journey. It's no spoiler. Um, along the way, sometimes she was joined by a friend or two. And a friend of a friend actually went ahead of her. I don't know how that she, I think she used a satellite phone to, to get help. And he cut away uh, fallen trees so that she could get through a portage. I mean, you know, the people were kind. She says people are afraid of people. But yeah. Everybody she encountered on this trip either fed her, encouraged her, gave her a place to sleep indoors. Everyone was great. She said it totally changed her view of human beings. Oh, I love that. We could all use that right now. Yes, um, and I have an interview with her. So, All right, excellent. Uh, let's talk about Dick Turpin because he <laughs> looks so good. I can't wait to watch this. It's British humor, which takes some getting used to if you don't know it. But Noel Fielding, who is the host of the co-host of the Great British Baking Show for many, many seasons, he's very droll, very funny and dry and sweet. Anyway, so he plays Dick Turpin, who was a real highwayman in the 1700s in England. And he was hanged for uh, stealing horses, but he accidentally killed three people somehow. Anyway, not a good dude. He had to rob all the carriages that were going through the woods he and his gang so in this version of it <laughs> he's too sweet the gang can't bring themselves to rob anybody and they go through incredible adventures he's actually a vegan butcher in his village so he i mean whatever that means right just one brain teaser after another it's so witty and funny and sweet and everything's going well for the gang. They're really trying to up their popularity. There's a big chart at the local pub, and they're at the bottom. They want to get to the top. And they're working their way up. And then along comes Tommy Silversides. Very flamboyant, loves to sing and dance. And uh, they have to not only deal with him, but also with a bunch of really bad dudes. So it's 
hilarious. I just, I just can't stop laughing about it. It reminded me a little bit of the older Monty Python. Yes. Uh, the humor. Yeah. Yes. It's in that wheelhouse. Oh, I didn't even think of that. You're absolutely right. And I must say, Noel Fielding is a very interesting character. He very. really is. And he comes, he comes across as so damn likable in the trailer even. See? I just, he, yeah. I was drawn to him. I have to watch this show now, so I, I yeah. can't wait. So that's on Apple, right. right? That's on Apple. That's right. All right. Uh, what else do we have? Well, there's a fabulous documentary for free on nfb.ca. Really fabulous. It looks at the whole quest. It's called Work Different, which isn't grammatical, but there you go. Um, it's the results of studies on working at home and working in the office since the pandemic. And they found that working from home eases the strain we put on the environment. It makes us happier. We are more productive. And the only exception to this rule is young people who are looking for friendships or partners in the office space. But uh, overall, the whole take is that people at home can save money, time, gas, um, and, and just live a happier life. They're, they're more efficient, they're happy, and it's been scientifically proven. So there you go. And I just want to shout out the Kingston Film Festival. Canadian Films is on right now. So go there. It's it's a scene, man. It's really grown in the past couple of years. Oh, that's good. That's great. I love that, uh, supporting Canadian filmmakers. And just one last thing I think we, it's worth mentioning quickly is um, Agatha Christie's Murder is Easy. <laughs> Yeah, that looks cool. really entertaining as well. It is. It's light. It's comfort watching. Agatha Christie murder comfort. <laughs> <laughs> Why we equate those two, I have no I idea. But that it is works. that is true. <laughs> it works. And All right, Anne. So you, you've you've got these uh, up on what she said talk dot com, and uh, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Never before has someone been A reality most of us will face one day is the topic of this next interview, the care of our elderly loved ones during hospital stays. Joining me is Elizabeth Payne, a veteran health reporter whose personal and professional lives recently collided in the most heart-wrenching way with the passing of her father. Elizabeth has been at the forefront of reporting on healthcare in Canada from groundbreaking stories like the Canadian-developed Ebola vaccine's first use to the profound impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on our health system. Today, she's here to share her insights and experiences, shedding light on how we can better advocate for the elderly in our healthcare system. Elizabeth, welcome to what she said. Thanks so much. Your, your recent experience with your father's hospital stay highlighted some significant challenges faced by elderly patients. From your dual perspective as both a daughter and a healthcare reporter, what are the key issues you identified in the care of elderly patients in hospitals? Um, well, what I saw with my dad's experience was that 
these issues that became issues during the pandemic and now are the new normal, such as staff shortages, understaffing, uh, lack of mobility, overcrowding, long waits in an emergency department, uh, lack of sort of understanding of the need to move around, uh, all harm people's uh, well-being and ability to maintain their independence and mobility. So your father, um, just for people who who you know don't know, and I will, will let them know that we did record a longer podcast on this, and I encourage them to go listen to it. But your father broke his arm uh, in a fall, and and from there, over the course of one year, his health deteriorated. Um, well, almost instantly, it started to deteriorate from that first uh, visit to the hospital, correct? That's right. Um, you know, it did it sort of did day by day throughout his stay in the hospital. Um, he was independent, uh, elderly, had some health issues, but doing okay. And he was driving the day he fell. Um, but he he broke his arm and then he had he required a pacemaker. Um, those two things didn't appear to be huge, but he it was the day-to-day in the hospital system that sort of chipped away at his ability to get up and move. I mean, as I read someone else say, they might fix a broken arm, but if you're elderly, you might never walk again. And that was precisely my dad's experience. And this is an all-too-common scenario, right? An elderly person will fall and perhaps break something and then never leave the hospital again. Yeah, no, I have to say with a few experiences of mine in emergency, I was so struck that when you see an ambulance go by on the street with lights flashing, you tend to imagine something, you know, some dramatic to a young person. In fact, a pretty big proportion of those ambulances are carrying an older person who has fallen. That's an extremely common um, ailment and very common for seniors. Do you have any advice that you can offer for people who who may be going through this or potentially will go through this for advocating for their loved ones in the hospital? Yes, I think um, everyone should be aware uh, that that keeping uh, their loved ones active is important. And that might require you being by their bedside uh, more than you would be able to normally, you or someone else. But uh, try to get them up to go to the washroom. Try to get them to walk around. You will probably get pushback from some of the staff if they're <laughs> they're worried about. But but try to make that happen. Um, ask why they need a catheter. Ask why they need an IV. Those things that keep them bound to their beds. Um, it's very important that they're able to move even just a little bit. That'll make a huge difference in their overall health. And some of the th- things you shared in the article and and we briefly discussed in the podcast as well, I was wondering if you could maybe share a couple of those. You know, you mentioned how quickly, uh, you know, an elderly patient's skin uh, is is at risk of, of harm. Yes, I was I was very struck by that. Within eight hours, uh, an elderly person's uh, lying flat on a, you know, not great mattress, an elderly person's skin can start to deteriorate which can lead to pressure sores or bed sores, um, which can be, you know, very, very serious, almost and fatal in some cases. So, so yeah. And how quickly for, for psychological effects to impact? Well, in my dad's case, it was really quickly. Um, Almost as soon as he ended up 
in the ER. And, you know, ERs, uh, this was an old hospital. It was too small. They're building a new one. Um, but it it was crowded. There's lots of noise. There's people moaning. There's police officers stationed with various patients. It's it's pretty chaotic, depending on when you're there. Um, and it was, you know, I think too much. My dad started um, having delusions, you know, seeing things. It, it, he hadn't been like that prior to entering the hospital. But it's it's a common, it's something that commonly happens in hospital and patients patients can kind of zoom in and out of reality really. And it's, it's partly the stress and the illness and all the rest. So you're a healthcare reporter. How did you, you know, seeing this now from the first time, uh, you know, for the first time in it yourself now, you know, previously you're reporting it, but now you're experiencing it yourself. Were you, um, has it changed your views on healthcare? Um, yeah, I think it has. I mean, I, I think it made me, I, I I think often what you're looking at is the system, although I, I frequently, of course, speak to people about their own experiences. You're often looking at the system and the systemic issues. So you're looking from sort of the macro level. When you're dealing with an individual and your loved one, you're looking at it from a micro level and how um, you see the sort of constant chipping away at this person's well-being um, from harms that happen in the hospital. And can they all be avoided? Possibly not, um, but some certainly can. What improvements do you think we need to make uh, in our system right now as it stands to help our our aging population? Well, I think a, a big factor could be better prevention, better community support um, to help people stay healthy and stay out of the hospital and fall prevention and all those things. Um, And there certainly are programs, um, but like everything, there's not enough as the population grows. In the hospital, there has to be more awareness and allowance for people to move and not be left in their beds. I mean, that that has to be seen as as a huge harm. Um, And it may be convenient. I think it often is for busy hospitals, but it's not convenient for the individuals at all. Okay. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'd like people to be able to keep up with your reporting and follow you on social media. Where can they do that? Um, yes, well, I write for the Ottawa Citizen, and and often my stories appear in other post media newspapers. But uh, the Ottawa Citizen is is at uh, ottawacitizen.com. Um, I'm often on X, formerly Twitter, uh, under E.G. Payne. Uh, my stories would appear there, um, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. All right, wonderful. Thank you for joining me today, Elizabeth, and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Rosacea is a chronic skin condition that affects more than 3 million Canadians with a slightly higher prevalence in women than men. It can cause persistent redness, visible blood vessels, and in some cases, acne-like bumps or pustules on the face. 
Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christine Palme, a family doctor from Midtown Toronto, who is here on behalf of care to know to help us understand this common skin issue and the available treatments. Welcome back, Dr. Palme. Happy to be here, Candice. Can you start by explaining what rosacea is and how it affects the skin, uh, particularly the middle portion of the face? Yeah, so rosacea is, uh, just to be clear, it's not acne. I'll start by saying what it isn't, often misdiagnosed as such. But it's an inflammatory condition of the skin, typically cheeks and nose area. It can happen on the forehead, on the chest, etc. And exactly what you said, you described it very well. It's almost like broken little blood vessels, a red rash sometimes can feel warm, um, but is so underappreciated in how it affects patients and misdiagnosed. You know, acne treatments, while there's a bit of overlap, and to be fair, acne and rosacea often exist together, uh, which adds to even more so to the confusion. Um, but, you know, because people are misdiagnosed or don't understand the condition, they're not being treated. Uh, and, you know, the burden of the disease is huge. And why is it more commonly diagnosed in women? Is it does it have anything to do with maybe the cosmetics we use or skincare products? So I mean, cosmetics can trigger absolutely a rosacea attack. Other triggers like alcohol, heat changes, and sometimes the triggers are very personalized and differ. But it's really hormonal too. You know, I have a number of patients depending on their menstrual cycle when they're going through perimenopause, postmenopause, etc. Those hormone fluctuations often uh, also increase the incidence. Um, so obviously, there's a very physical side to rosacea, but there's also a psychological side to that. So can you talk about the emotional toll this takes on people? People just are embarrassed, right? They uh, don't go out. So there's social anxiety. Um, you know, there's uh, body image issues, especially in younger patients. You know, we know how acne sometimes affects patients. Well, rosacea is often the same. And I think because patients are often misdiagnosed and not treated appropriately, they never have clearing of the skin. So, you know, it just perpetuates their anxiety and their frustration. Uh, quality life measures, it's actually quite shocking when you look at it. People are depressed, anxious, uh, and like I said, not partaking in life activities. And so treatment options then, I'm going to assume is a mix between lifestyle changes and medication? Yeah. So the first thing is looking at making a proper diagnosis, right? Understanding the difference. Like I said, you may still have acne that may be treated separately, but you really have to clinch in the diagnosis. Uh, number two, a good skincare regimen. So, I mean, this applies in general. Make sure you are washing, not overwashing, uh, moisturizing, and providing SPF because uh, uh, sun exposure can actually trigger rosacea, heat changes, etc. Um, lifestyle changes are interesting because they differ. So, finding out your triggers, whether it's alcohol, in some cases, different forms of exercise. I had a patient that had to stop hot yoga because she would just, you know, her rosacea would flare afterwards. So, I mean, that's counterintuitive. You think that yoga would be helpful health-wise, but for her, it was the opposite. Um, managing stress in a way that makes sense to you. Um, those are the big ticket items. Sometimes people have uh, reactions after having uh, sulfites or a salty food or chocolate. It's a bit of a search and rescue, though, so you have to spend a bit of time investing in understanding your personal experience. Can rosacea pop up at any time, or is this something we typically acquire or get earlier in life? I, and it can happen at any time. I mean, typically, like I said, during hormonal shifts. So uh, when a woman's starting her period, uh, during the perimenopausal period, sometimes as you're going into the postmenopausal period, that can happen. I mean, it really, though, can happen at any time. 
Okay. So if people want to know more then about rosacea and the treatments available, um, where can they go? Well, so the first thing is making sure you're informed and empowered. And like we've always said, um, misinformation is en masse. It's pervasive nowadays. So caretoknow.ca. It's free. You sign up. Uh, there's a website with a plethora of information, not just about rosacea, but other health conditions. Information arrives to your inbox. The most important thing is, is that there's input uh, from medical uh, experts like myself. The information is updated, right? You always want to make sure you're uh, marching with the times as information evolves rapidly. Uh, credible information is hard to get these days and your health is so essential. Make sure you know your, where you're going and browse safely. Just before we end, because I'm I'm more curious now, is does rosacea can you eliminate it, or is it something that will always be with you once you get it? Great question. Thanks for asking. It's a chronic condition, so it has to be managed. Which means there are times where it's worse, there are times that they're better, uh, and medications often are geared as such. You know, some medications we use during flares, some are used for maintenance. Uh, we have orals, we have you know, uh, we have topicals in a wide variety. Uh, but it is a chronic condition. So don't fatigue, um, you know, rally on, and we do have good options available. All right. And of course, you go deeper into this issue on whatshesaidtalk.com so people can head over there uh, to to get more information and find out uh, more about you and Care to Know. So thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. In this next interview, we're diving into the vibrant and tumultuous world of groupies in an era just before the digital revolution took hold. Yellow Birds, the debut novel by Karen Green, takes us on a journey with Kate, a young woman searching for her identity among the eclectic and spirited followers of a band reminiscent of the Grateful Dead. With a backdrop filled with sex, drugs, rock and roll, and the quest for belonging, this novel promises a bohemian love story unlike any other. Karen, welcome to What She Said. Thank you for having me, Candace. So what inspired you to write Yellow Birds and why did you choose this unique backdrop of the groupie lifestyle for your debut novel? Well, I think it's because I am a deadhead, was a deadhead. And, you know, there are just so many stories and adventures that went along with that. And quite frankly, I was surprised that nobody had done it before. I was surprised that this had not been the subject of a novel yet. There's just so many stories to tell. So that's where I started. At the arrival of Horizon in the book sort of marks a turning point in Kate's life. Without giving too much away, can you tell us about the significance uh, in the story and the dynamics of his relationship with Kate? Yeah, um, I really love the the love story between Horizon and Kate. It's unexpected. It's not planned. And Horizon is a bit antithetical to everything that's going on in this scene. Um, he's He's very clean cut compared to everybody else, but he's very comfortable in the scene and everybody accepts him. So not only is he a companion for Kate, but he really does show her that it's, you know, be who you are, um, just be yourself, be yourself with someone else. And it's a really beautiful thing. And he really teaches her that she can just relax and figure out who she is without worrying about what everybody else thinks. So I really love that the journey that they go on together. And the novel looks at, you know, themes of identity, belonging, consequences of our past. What do you hope readers take away from Kate's story and her experience with the Yellow Birds? 
Um, I really think that, you know, the whole idea of identity is really a big thing in society right now. We're at a bit of a turning point with people, um, you know, the rhetoric for better or for worse regarding identity. And really what this book is about is being who you are, deciding who that is, deciding what your name is, what your journey is, who you are, um, and deciding that for yourself. So I really hope that people come away with the idea that whoever you are is just fine and it is okay to try on a few things and it's okay to experiment and it's not a, up to anybody else to tell you who that is. And, you know, times are certainly different from when perhaps you were were doing this, uh, you know, as a younger teenager, young woman. Is the groupie lifestyle even a thing anymore in 2024? Is it still something that people can do? Yeah, I think there's definitely a fan culture out there. You know, there's the festival culture. You've got your Coachellas. You've got your Burning Man, all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, the Grateful Dead have, have moved into several different iterations since uh, 1995 when Jerry Garcia died. Um, I was at a Dead & Company show this this summer. And there are still people who cling to this lifestyle. I think there are pockets of communities in North America where you find this more than other places um, where, you know, things have kind of stayed the same. Uh, but I do think that these closed communities and um, are really out there and, you know, the fan communities, I think there's actually a little bit of a resurgence in the fan communities. Um, you know, in one way, the Swifties kind of embody this, right? Um, if we think of this, you know, as a, a little bit cultish, they do have their you know, their leader, their, their personality that they love and follow. And if the girls could get the tickets, I'm sure they'd go to every show they could. So absolutely. <laughs> I think the fan culture is still, it's still out there. And, you know, I, I know you from years ago and I always thought you were a fantastic writer, but you wrote, you know, essays and poetry. And so did you, you know, to transition to writing a novel, what was that process like for you? Yeah, it was really, I needed the time and space to do it, right? Like, you know how busy we were back in those days. We had little kids, we had so much going on, and we did still find time for writing, which was a wonderful thing. Um, but I just needed the time and space to do it. And I think that whenever we can award that for ourselves, um, it's wonderful, it, no matter what time of life that is for us, whatever season we're in. Um, and this is the season that I'm in where I can devote that time and the energy to do it. So this is when I did it. Well, I, I mean, I know from personal experience that your writing is incredibly impactful. So I, I have not an opportunity to read the book yet, but I know uh, it will be amazing because your writing is amazing. So where can people find the book, connect with you? And I'm, I'm actually keep up with you because I'm positive you're probably already working on the next book. I am. Yep, definitely. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for saying that. Um, you can find the book wherever you love to buy books. It's, it's in all the big places and most of the little ones. You can always uh, request it from your favorite indie store if that's the way you want to go, which I highly support. Um, and, you know, right now I'm trying to stay a little bit off socials because it just is what it is. But you can find me on Instagram, Karen Green underscore author. I would love to connect with readers and writers there for sure. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. Thank you for having me, Candace. Really enjoyed it. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
constant quest to lead a healthier lifestyle, there is a lot of information to wade through, but there is nothing more confusing than the topic of food. Navigating the world of nutrition can feel like walking through a minefield with every step needing careful consideration. And just when you think you've got it all figured out, you find out that what you thought was a health food might not be so healthy after all. But fear not, because today I have Mal Mana from Lady the F Up here to clear some of these confusions, share some guilt-free cheat foods, and give us the lowdown on protein needs for women. Mal, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Candice, for having me. So let's start with the basics because, you know, there are some really common foods that people often mistake for being healthy, but might actually be holding them back from reaching their health goals. So maybe you could share some of those with us. Yeah, so I, you know, I have a lot of women that come to me who have a hard time losing weight and they're like, you know, I eat really healthy, you know, I have five meals a day or three meals a day, whatever their structure that they may have found online is, and they can't understand why. And then, you know, when I kind of comb through and understand what they're having, something that I find a lot of people assume is healthy that's not actually as healthy is yogurt parfaits. So, you know, having flavored yogurt and topping it with granola and they're like, but I made it at home. Yes. And maybe you are getting a little bit of protein with that breakfast, however, or that snack, but the sugar and carbs that you're getting from it outweigh the protein value. And you end up, it's one of those foods where you have a sugar spike and then a crash midday. And then, you know, women find themselves exhausted at lunch around 12 o'clock, they need a coffee. So a lot of the time that is, you know, one like food that I notice is a common um, trend among a lot of women in meals protein bars, you know, those um, pure life uh, Costco has like the packages of the pre-made shakes, fair life shakes. While yes, you're getting protein in it. You're also getting preservatives that are added. And a lot of people can't aren't just they're not aware they there's digestive disturbances with preservatives, and they can't make that connection. And you know, smoothies, they, unless they're green made out of celery, kale, they have upward between 50 to 60 grams of sugar. So someone's like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go to freshly squeezed and grab a, uh, you know, a juice, but the amount of sugar in that it's like eating candy, you know? Yes. It's healthy ish because it's fruit. That's what they think. But the amount of sugar, it's not going to be something where you're going to, it'll be conducive to the goals that you may have of fat loss. What about carbohydrates? They they often get a really bad rap in yeah. <laughs> in yeah. diet culture. Everyone's scared of carbs. Yeah, we're all terrified of them. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, and in your opinion, though, are carbs really the villain here? And what makes a good carb? So carbs are not something to be feared of. Processed carbs are something that's not optimal for you know a healthy diet. The thing that I you know people assume that carbs are what make you fat, but it's actually fats that make you fat. And the reason why I say that is because fats per gram have more calories than carbs. And, you know, if you think about it a lot, especially in the, um, you know, old school or the, you know, cooking, people cook with oil, right? They, you know, marinate their chicken, they will coat their pan. Um, and the excess amount of carbs or fats, sorry, people end up having you know, hundreds extra calories at the end of the day being in a surplus. So carbs are not the problem necessarily. We need carbs to be able to, as an energy source and something for fuel. So good carbs are, you know, are fruits and vegetables. You want to try to find carbs that are higher, you know, for fruit, for example, that are higher in fiber, lower in sugar. So berries, 
raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, strawberries, those kinds of fruits are great. Vegetables that are, you know, I try to say, look for the green shade because you're going to get more micronutrients out of it. And they have typically higher fiber content. And that's what fiber is very important for a diet because it helps keep you full longer. And then obviously it helps with digestion. But the thing that people, you know, are thinking that are bad are not necessarily all bad. Like, you know, yes, bread is processed, you know, potato chips, um, these things are processed carbs. And the issue is having it in moderation. So if you're having more of these processed carbs than whole foods, then yes, you know, it's going to contribute to, you know, weight gain at the end of the day, but it's not something to be afraid of. And in fact, a lot of the women that I work with are eating so much carbs and they're like, Mal, I don't understand how I'm eating so much food and I'm losing so much weight. And it's just because it's just such a, you know, a myth that we have to try to break in, you know, this kind of culture. And we don't have a lot of time left. So I want to ask uh, sort of two questions here. First, yes. when you want to cheat or feel like you're having something indulgent, what do you reach for that's healthy, but makes you feel like, you know, you, you've had that sugary snack or that salty snack? Okay. So one thing that I really love is rice cakes topped with almond butter and banana because you're getting a bit of salty and sweet. And, you know, there's nutrition coming out of that or nutrition, nutritional benefits. I always try to look for foods, whether it's like a, a cheat or a snack that I'm going to get something out of it, that it's not shallow calories so that I'm wasting calories. Another good snack is popcorn, you know, just like a lightly salted popcorn. You can buy them um, at the grocery store or you can pop them yourself at home. And th that's a really great way to get a crunch and, you know, sweeten it based on, with herbs where it has a lot of good fiber and it's a relatively healthier snack. Those listening right now who are hearing about, you know, Lady the F Up, which I love the name of that, by the way, for the first time, can you <laughs> quickly explain how your program works and how it supports women in achieving their health and fitness goals? Yeah, absolutely. So Lady the F Up is an online um, fitness company based out of Toronto. And our goal is to help women achieve their fitness goals in whatever capacity that means. So we work with women that either have struggled with disordered eating, um, you know, are overweight, have autoimmune deficiencies, anything that you come to us with, we work to help you become healthier in general. So everything's customized between your nutrition plan, you know, a training protocol, not everyone has to go to the gym, you know, it's very customized to the need of the individual. And one thing that, you know, allows us to be unmatched, because we are now global. So we work with 1000s of women all over the world is that our end goal is once you leave us and you have reached your goal, the goal, the progress that you have made is sustainable so that you can carry on this healthier lifestyle, you know, in the future where a lot of these diets or these programs, you lose the weight, you gain back tenfold. And, you know, we work with women ages 20 to 70 years old. So we are, you know, some a, a company that wants to empower women to be confident and feel good again through health and fitness. Well, I love it. I, and it is so confusing. We definitely need a guide through this. So where can people connect with you? Yeah, so uh, you can visit our website at ladythefup.com. We're also available on Facebook. We have our Instagram, ladythefup, and it's L-A-D-Y-B-T-H-E-F-U-P. And my Instagram is coachmal or coachmal.m underscore underscore. But if you look at our Lady F Up area, we can book a call with us and it's a free consultation just to get more information and find out how you can, you know, start working towards a healthier you. 
All right. Amazing. Thank you. I'm going to put the links for that when this goes out uh, on the blog post when the podcast is live. So thank you so much for joining me today, Mal. Thank you so much, Candice. I really appreciate it. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.